0: Thank you for being here. Welcome to those of you watching my live stream. This weekend is Vision Weekend at Summit. It's about the mission that Jesus called us to. What is it? What's my part in it? You know, Jesus is not looking for fans or admirers, he's looking for followers. Big, big difference in admiring and being a fan versus being a follower. So I want to talk for a little bit about what drives your life and what drives our church. To drive something means to guide it, to direct it, to aim it where you want it to go. When you drive a car, where does it go? It's going to go where you drive it, where you want to steer it. When you drive a nail, where does it go? Well, into the wood, hopefully where you want it to go. When you drive a golf ball, where does it go? Wherever it wants to go. God only knows where the ball's going to go. So what drives your life today? Could be money, ambition, could be fear, security, ego, or something else. What drives the church? Well sometimes it's just plain old tradition. Sometimes it's making budget. Sometimes it's political ideology. Sometimes it's spiritual consumerism, or it could be something else. And I'll talk for a few moments about that something else. Matthew chapter 9, if you have your Bible, verse 35 through 38, Matthew chapter 9. This is a pivotal moment in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, just like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest field. Jesus was a man on fire. He was driven by love, and He was a man on a mission. He traveled all over the place. He would see people, and He saw a lot of misery. Lepers whom nobody else would touch would come to him, and he'd touch them. A paralyzed guy was brought to him so desperate that his friends actually ripped a hole through the roof of an unknown man just so they could let him down into the presence of Jesus. A blind guy had been reduced to just begging by the side of the road. Pitiful, especially people who didn't have enough money for doctors or medicine or care. They'd come from all over the place. Desperate parents brought their children. The anxious, the depressed, the alone, the afraid, were all screaming inside, do you see me, Jesus? Could you help me, Jesus? And Matthew says this wonderful thing. When Jesus saw the crowds, He had compassion on them. Not judgment, not superiority, not disdain or ridicule. He just saw people. There's an orphan. There's a poor woman who's been forced into prostitution. There's a Pharisee, very religious but totally confused. He wants to love God, but he just doesn't know how. There's a Roman soldier. Everybody hates him. There's a widow. Nobody notices. She has no money. She's vulnerable. She has no influence. She's throwaway. There's a rich young ruler. Everybody envies him. Nobody knows what's really going on in his heart. And Jesus sees all of these people, and He has compassion because of their condition. They were helpless before the power of sin that was all around them and inside of them. They were like sheep, Jesus said, without a shepherd. So He healed them, and He preached the good news of the kingdom. That's the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that through Jesus, life with God is possible for people who thought they would never, ever qualify in a million years. By grace, your sins can be forgiven, your guilt can be removed, and your idols can be overthrown you know Kenny was doing communion a minute ago and he quoted from hebrews let us come boldly before the throne of god to obtain grace and mercy in time of need i've been to churches where they would crawl down before god as though god was pleased with that if my children crawl down in front of me i'd say get what is wrong with you get up and so because i'm a child of god my the judgment of my sins already been paid for I have now been adopted into the family of God as a full heir of Jesus Christ, a full son or daughter of God. And I don't know about you, but my children that are my children relate to me out of relationship, not out of an appointment with the secretary. And they never call me by title, Pastor Godwin. They cry, Daddy, Daddy. And that's exactly what Scripture says. Let us come boldly before the throne of God, crying, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. It's relationship. Can I have 20 bucks? There was no fear. They didn't care who I was talking to. They didn't care if I was in an appointment or busy. Didn't matter. Boom, right into the room. Can I have daddy, daddy? They expected, they expected out of a relationship, I'd receive them. And my empty pockets prove I did. I do all the time. That's how God says, I want you to approach me now. You don't have to be afraid of me. In the Old Testament, they had a veil over the Holy of Holies. You couldn't come near God. It was a holy, fearful thing. You could die. The high priest could only go behind that veil once a year. Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And they would tie a rope on his leg because if he died and God didn't accept the sacrifice and God killed him, they weren't going in. They were going to pull him out. There are a lot of things you don't know and read in the Bible. So God was very fearful thing. Like Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, if we found the ark and opened it, ooh, the spooky thing would get you. Nothing would get you but people who want to merchandise it, nothing. There's nothing in the box. He's gone. He dwells not in a temple made with hands, but in you today. And so, when Jesus died on the cross, paid for the debt of sin, the veil in the temple was torn in two, and now there was full access into the presence of God through Jesus' work on the cross. Oh, by the way, the Pharisees sewed it back up. I think churches still sew it back up. Don't want you to get in there. But Jesus made it possible for me to come as a son, not an orphan, not not a—sure hope you'll see me today. I'm pretty pitiful today, but I can come boldly to get grace and mercy. What do you need today? Maybe you need some grace. Maybe you need a whole lot of mercy. Well, you're in the right place at the right time. And so, He's looking at these people who thought they had never qualified. So by grace our sins can be forgiven, your guilt can be removed, and idols overthrown. That's true for you and I today. You can have a fresh start every morning. You can have a Heavenly Father that watches over you every night. You can have a family to belong to. You don't have to be an orphan. You can have a spirit to guide you. You can have a purpose to inspire you. You can have an eternity to look forward to. You can have hope, and Jesus would talk about it, and He's just walking all over the place talking to people. Matthew said He was going to all the towns and villages. He's talking about the range of His ministry. And He mentions villages, and a village was so small, it didn't even count as a town. And the idea was that there was no place too small for Jesus to go. More and more people kept coming. This really happened. The scale of human need was overwhelming, and it broke His heart. Finally, one day, He turns to the disciples, and I paraphrase. It's kind of like He said to them, guys, I can't take this another day. I can't stand for people to be trapped in their lives without God. Their aloneness, their brokenness, their confusion, their fear, their isolation, their pain, their hurt, and all their needs are breaking my heart. Do you guys see it? Do you guys get it? We can't be satisfied with our own little get-together, how good things are, our friendship, me, myself, and I. We can't be satisfied with that anymore. I need you to know, guys, we're not here for us. We're here for them. That's the only reason we're here. Otherwise, Jesus would take us straight on to heaven. So He's saying right now we're in the middle of sheep without a shepherd. People are alone. They're confused. They're afraid. They're harassed. They're helpless. They're hell-bound. But there could be a harvest. We could see a harvest of redeemed humanity that would bring joy to heaven and bring a little bit of heaven down to earth. We could see a harvest of reconciliation that could deliver people from all of the hatred, bigotry, and racism, and violence that's still going on in our world. We could see a harvest of generosity, so that instead of impoverished parents who can't feed starving children, everybody would have enough. We could see a harvest of righteousness that means every one of us in this room, our character could be transformed, redeemed, and restored. We can change. I can't stand, he says, to be over here anymore when we could be at the harvest. But guys, we have a problem, he said. The harvest is enormous, immense, record level, huge. Our problem? The labor force is pitiful. How big is the labor force? Well, it's tiny, just a blip on the radar. Right now, it's just one guy. It's just Jesus. So if workers are not available, the harvest is never going to be gathered in. The harvest would be lost. So, what shall we do? Jesus says, pray. Pray that the Lord of the harvest, because it's His harvest, God's the one at work in human lives, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out, and then He uses an interesting word, workers. Not consultants, not experts, not supervisors, not spectators, not consumers, not VIPs, not CEOs or MBAs, just this very humble word, workers. Now." Just take a wild guess. What does a worker do? Apparently, honey, this is not a blue-collar crowd. Yeah, Workers work. Yeah, Jesus had a lot to say about it. He said, I've got to be about my Father's work that He sent me to do. He said in John 9, as long as it's day, we must do the work of Him who sent me. He said, it's real simple. Anybody can do it. Listen. Notice. Encourage. Care. Share. Give. Serve. Come alongside. Witness. Love. Jesus said, pray. Guys, pray that God will send out workers, spiritual workers, kingdom workers, because my heart is breaking for the human race. Looking at them like sheep without a shepherd, you've got to pray. The twelve disciples prayed. God, send out workers. And then in the very next verse, Matthew 10, verse 1, God has Jesus send out workers. Well, guess who? God has Jesus send out. The twelve disciples who prayed, God, send out workers. (laughs) Got to be careful. That's a real dangerous prayer to pray, because it's going to be you. Now this is real crucial. Jesus had a mission. It was His idea. He started it. He went on it. It was going real well. He was doing it because His heart was broken at the shape of our world. Jesus had a mission, and then one day He invited 12 of His friends to join Him in that mission. Jesus did not start the church and then give it a mission. Jesus started a mission and then gave it a church. Sometimes people think about churches as a place that exists just for their sake. Maybe they have a missions department. Maybe they send out a couple of people and do some good things. But Jesus didn't start a church and give it a mission. He went on a mission, and He invited a church to join Him. Here's what can happen over time if we lose our focus. David Platt writes about a ship that was built 60 years ago to be the greatest military troop carrier in United States naval history. It was called the SS United States. It was designed to carry over 15,000 military troops faster and farther, not having to stop for fuel or supplies than any other ship in military history. You can see it on the side screens. The only thing was, it never got used to carry troops. It was such a remarkable ship, it got turned into a luxury liner for celebrities and heads of state. It contained 600 staterooms, four dining salons, three bars, two theaters, and the comfort of being the world's first fully air-conditioned passenger ship for all the wealthy passengers who wanted to enjoy first-class service. It was designed to be a military troop carrier, to have a mission, to carry the boys into the mission. But he got turned in to a luxury liner for consumers. It became a carnival cruise. Mardi Gras, Mai Tais, Pina Coladas, whoo, water slides, entertainment, theater. Am I comfortable? Do I like the food? Do I like the captain and his crew? It, it became a celebrity cruise, and not a military ship carrying people into the mission. See, we're a battleship, not carnival cruise, but we lose that. And so we build churches by race. We build them by zip code. We build them for the affluent. And so, of course, they're designed a certain way—quiet choirs, robes, organ preludes. The minister will wear a, a long tux or robed in a boutonniere. Everything will be formal, staged, no surprises, nothing that would upset you in any way, completely boring and irrelevant. But it's a high-dollar zip code, so that church will reflect that high-dollar zip code, not the mission. And there are churches gathered around race. We're a black church. We're a Hispanic church. We're an Asian church. We're a white church. We're a Republican church. We're a Tea Party church. We're a Democrat church. We're, uh, we're a church of skinny jeans and uh, millennials. Now, you're as confused as a termite in a yo-yo. That is not the church. The mission existed before the church. The church gets to come along on the mission. And Jesus had a diversity in mind about church. Jew and Gentile, free and slave, male and female, everybody. And in the next 10 years, there probably only going to be two kinds of churches in America. Churches that embrace diversity, and churches that have become ghettos of similarity. It's all about, well, our political ideology here, or our race here. And you become bland and boring. Now if you were an African American, and you came into this, uh, this big building, I'd want to see some folks like me. I'd want to see them on stage. I'd want to see them in the, ch- in the chairs. I'd want to see them uh, working on staff. I'd want to see them everywhere around there. I'd say, oh, this is cool. There's a lot of folks like me here. If I was a white guy walking into an all-black church, I'd be in trouble. I'd look like an Oreo cookie, because there ain't nobody else like me around. I'm not too sure I'll be comfortable or welcomed, or maybe I feel left out. Maybe nobody will embrace me. If you're Asian, you'd like to see a few Asian people in here. uh, If you're Hispanic, you'd like to see some Hispanic. If you're old, you'd like to see a few white, gray-haired people around. Yeah, there's some old folks here. And then if you're young, you'd like to see some young people jumping around in skinny jeans and uh, rocking the house a little bit. Diversity. It's not one size fits all. It's nonsense. It doesn't exist. Does that make sense? And so, we're not here for ourselves. We have a mission. We're a troop carrier, and if you get on a troop carrier, it ain't air-conditioned. You don't get a shower. You don't get Chateaubriand. There's no satellite TV or movies. It's rough. It's uncomfortable because it's not about—that boat is not about comfort or entertainment. It's about a mission. We're going to war. We've got to fight. We're, We're headed somewhere. We're doing something. And church has kind of forgotten that and lost the whole issue, and we're losing a generation. So I was thinking, what if Jesus were here in our day? Because He is. What if He were to walk around our towns and villages and China Grove and all the different areas around San Antonio? What would He see? What would He feel? Do you think Jesus would look at us at Summit and say, mission accomplished? Yeah, I don't think so. I think he would see more spiritual confusion and isolation than ever before, more marriages breaking up. He'd see a big gap between rich and poor getting wider and more painful. I think he'd see more babies being born out of wedlock without a family to care for them. I think he'd see more people living in isolation without anybody to love them. I think he'd see addictions on the rise. He'd see young girls with eating disorders because they, they're captured by the culture of what's beautiful. He'd see all kinds of men enslaved by online pornography. I think he'd see fear-raiding crime-infested neighborhoods, bankrupt school districts, anxious college students who are afraid they'll never get out or get a job, hopeless high school dropouts who are afraid life has nothing for them. He'd see workaholic parents, lonely retirees, a lot of fear fear of aging, fear of failure, fear of not having enough money, fear of death. And then he'd see the church. He'd see this community of people who know God, or at least say we do know God, who know the grace of being forgiven, of being loved, a community that's been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to guide us and wisdom from the scriptures. And he would say, Do you see what I see, guys? Do you feel what I feel? Do you know you're not just here for you? We're here for them." I think He would say, hey, Summit, I want to go on a little walk with you around San Antonio. Now I want you to see what I saw. I want you to feel what I felt, and I just want a heart of compassion. I just want you to love San Antonio. We're not called to judge it. We're not called to make it shape up. We're not called to save it. God forbid we're the savee's, not the save yours. We're not going to claim it. We're not going to win it. We're not going to scold it. We're going to love it, just like He said. Now, you know what? Folks can't ever be mad at you when you love them. You can disagree ideology. You can disagree morally. You can disagree politically. But when folks just get on you, love you, and hug you, and won't let you go, won't, it's just hard to be mean to somebody who loves you. That's why the Bible says love never fails. Some of you, you got to have your 15 points and whatever, and you're never going to win anybody. So God says through Paul in Corinthians, love never fails. Never does. Even though there are some people that have just loved their way into my circle. I didn't have anything to do with them. I wouldn't have chosen to have anything to do with them, I can't get rid of them, and they just love you. What are you going to do with that? Well, you accept them. And that's how, if you're going to have any impact on someone's life, first you got to get into it. And you're not going to get into it because you're doctrinally right, or you're politically right, or culturally right. It's, you got to love them. All I know is that Jesus sure attracted people today's bloggers would not like, and today's religious uh, Pharisees that are noteworthy in our country on radio and TV, the Bible Answer Man and whatever else. I bet Jesus would answer him, and it wouldn't be nice. You know what the fastest-growing religious group in America is? These are people that when they're asked, what's your religious affiliation, their answer is none. They're called the nuns in our day. In the 1980s, about 7% of the American population were in the nun category. By 2007, it was up to 15%. By 2012, it hit 20%. Dr. Robert Putman, one of the scholars that dealt with this says, quote, the sudden rise of the nuns is the most significant trend in our nation's religious landscape in the last 50 years. The odd thing, he writes, is that a little over 85 percent of folks who put themselves in the nun category are not atheists. They're not unbelievers. They're open to God. They're often interested in spiritual life. Putnam says, most of them have given up on the church because they think the church has become captive to a political ideology, and if you go there, it's more about politics than about God. Yeah. Please. I travel the world. I preach in churches. I can tell you, to a great degree, not exclusively, that's true. Among young people, the percentage who put themselves in that none category is even higher. You know, the world around us is changing radically. We are not a church with a mission. We are not a political organization. We are a mission to whom Jesus has given a church. So, we can't stay here when the harvest is out there. I think we confuse our mission with our culture and our civil rights. Let me see. I hope I can do this right. Uh, I'm sure critics will fix me. There are, there are rights you have that are civil that are not biblical. Big difference. If the government— if, if it's the state Supreme Court of Texas or the Senate and the House vote to legalize marriage to Cocker Spaniels, it's, it's voted in. That's a civil right. Stay with me, right? Okay. But it is not a biblical right, okay? Uh, we get a tax deduction in America for our charitable giving. Give to the church, you get a tax deduction, correct? That's not a biblical right. That's a civil right. You're a citizen of America, and our laws give you that privilege, but it's not given to you by the Bible. And in the Bible days, Old or New Testament, you can get no tax deduction. That'll separate the tithers real fast, wouldn't it, and and the givers. Uh, Yeah, but God promises still to bless you, government or no government, tax deduction or no tax deduction. And in 75% of the world where I go, they don't get that, and yet they still give and they still tithe. Think about that. So, so uh, God—the government can legalize anything. It can legalize anything. And I would say, you have a civil right. I'll defend your right, your civil right. But I am a minister of the gospel of Jesus, and in the kingdom of God, I would say, you don't have a biblical right. No, no, no. That's wrong. God says, don't do it. I love you. Maybe you're redeemed by the blood, but what you're doing is wrong. Don't do that in my kingdom. So a civil right is not a biblical right. Does that, that make sense? like that. Okay, so what what are we trying to do? We're trying to line up with the kingdom of God. Now, I've been thinking a lot about reaching the next generation, people people who need to know God. You know, I've hit an age where uh, some folks, not nice people, love to remind me about how how old I'm getting. And one of them sent me this. Two elderly couples are visiting each other. The husbands are talking in one room. The wives are talking in another room. One of the husbands says, my wife and I went to this restaurant last night. It was incredible. The other guy says, what's it called? We'll go too. The first guy said, oh, I can't remember. I I knew you were going to ask me that. Uh, What's the name of that flower that has a long stem? It's red. There are thorns on it. You give a dozen to somebody you love. And the other guy said, Rose. That's what it's called. He yells to the other room, hey, Rose, what's the name of that restaurant we went to? (laughs) He can't remember anything. The church is designed to be a multi-generational community. That means you have children, you, you have grandchildren, your children's friends, and you're concerned as a parent or grandparent about their spiritual lives. I am. Will they get to know God? If you're old, God says you have to learn to love the young. You have to believe in them. You have to encourage them. You have to see the best in them. Because it's so easy for old people to get so judgmental and think, well, I don't like their tattoos. I don't like their music. I don't like their body piercing. I don't like their clothes. And you have to say, I'll go out of my way to sacrifice my own taste preference and my own preferences on everything else for their sake, for their faith, so they can come to know and love God. God did not say there had to be a communion table in the front. God did not sanction pews. God did not sanction choir robes. They're not illegal. They're not prohibitive. They're not evil. But they are sometimes in the way of being effective and reaching another generation that didn't like your music. I don't like my kids' music. I don't care. I'll never like it, but I have to listen to it. Some of you would like the old hymns of the faith. What a fellowship! What a joy, divinely! Yeah, I know. I was raised on that too. And then you come into church now, and it's smoke machines and overhead screens and jamming guitars and all. And and and, and some of you older people say, "Well, I just don't like all that hopping around." That's because you never hopped around. You know. I'm just. Here's what happens. We came into church. We got saved. They played this kind of music. The style of the church was this way. And we thought, well, if that was good enough for me, then that'll be good enough for you. But it isn't. You're not even giving your kids the toys you and I grew up with. You hypocrite. You're not doing that. You have to lay down your rights. The only thing we don't change on, we don't negotiate on, is God's Word. That's eternal, immutable. It does not change ever. It's inspired of God. Number two, we don't change on who Jesus is, the virgin-born Son of the living God who died punished for our sins, rose from the dead the third day, and is alive forevermore. He's the way, the truth, and the life. That's non-negotiable. But if you could just get off your old dead tradition, and the st- it's about me and what I like and what I'm comfortable, and lose the next generation, we're a fool. I don't want to lose my kids. I don't want to lose the next generation. And music is not—there's is not, uh, no, there's no one Bible kind of music. All of the Psalms are songs written by David, for the most part, who played, we know, a stringed instrument. But you can't tell me what beat he used. Three, four beat, four, four beat. No, no, shut your mouth. You can't tell me because it's not in the scripture. And yet you're going to say, well, I believe that's the devil's music up there. Really? Well, show me where and how you got that sparky IQ of a potato. That's just dumb. So what we want to be is not cute or cool, but effective in merging the generations. I don't want to lose young people. I don't think old. Like some of you, I don't think about my AARP or whatever that thing is. I don't think about (laughs) Social Security. I don't think about Medicare. And I hear people talking about, I'm not downing you. I'm just saying it ain't on my plate. You know, you know, I don't wear skinny jeans, mainly because it wouldn't fit good, probably. I don't know. But I think they're cool. And if you're a skinny jeans millennium and you preach that way. I'll be over here cheering cheer you on. Get off my case. I ain't going to be like you. I'm not you. I love you, but I'm going to keep my own style and who I am, my own identity. And you keep yours. Just be you, okay? Well, you think we're going to build a church around skinny jeans and being millennial? No, I'm going to be who I am. You be who you are, and that's the beauty of the church. Diversity is a beautiful thing. I don't know how i, I got way off course on that, didn't I? <laughs> And if you're, if you're young, you got to honor the old. You know, you got to lift them up. you got to learn. There's a lot of things they've lived through, mistakes they've made that could save you a lot of pain and heartache. They've picked up a lot of wisdom. Some of them have, and I want it. I don't want to cast them away because they're old. If you're not sure whether you're young or old, you're old. We live in a world where young people in their teens and in their 20s are living without God like never before. And I'm not going to be one of those churches that cling to past traditions and styles while my children or grandchildren go to hell. We will not be that because we have been given a mission. We're not a church with a mission. We're a mission that's been given to a church. And whatever it takes to reach, to have compassion on people, on a generation harassed and helpless and pressured like sheep without a shepherd, then by God's grace, we'll do that. So, God's not calling us to be satisfied until we reach our— Redemptive potential. Let me say something about that. Potential is what you could do, but you haven't done it yet. Potential is the capacity you have that you haven't fully realized yet. Humanly speaking, we all have potential, intellectually, financially, educationally. We all have potential, but if you'll put God into that equation, two loaves and five fish have the potential to feed 5,000 people. Or one little seed has the potential to be put into good soil and bear fruit a hundred times over. Potential becomes a huge deal when you put God in it. So when you take our ordinary substandard uh, uh, common lives and put God into it, our potential probability goes off the chart. So our potential is unlimited only by our own fear and unbelief and doubt. I believe our potential to fill this church and every seat in it is huge and stands before us. Our potential to possess all of Marshall Road and build and equip. And I gave you at the start of the year the three big areas we were working on this year right now. We, we need some of you to be so excellent in business, you make a lot of money. I was in the office when a businessman came in in Virginia to where I was preaching a few weeks ago and gave a check for $1.9 million. That's what I said. And I thought, "How great, How great! This guy scored big, works hard, loves God, is a giver anyway, but came into a phenomenal amount of money and put 1.9 million in the church. I mean, some of these guys give 10 million for a library and 50 million for something else that has no eternity in it. And the purpose of that prosperity is, certainly, you'd be a blessing to you but then bless the kingdom of God. Be, what is your potential? I can't stand to see people just getting by when they have the potential to earn so much more and be so much more profitable and have their businesses more profitable. God wants you. He said, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So that sounds like some pretty big potential. And I want our church just to get by, pay the bills, and have a little bit left over. That ain't our potential. But I'm, you know, it's, I keep hammering away. I hope before I die my eyes get to see You know, that potential realized by other people. And then redemptive potential. We did potential. How about the redemptive part of potential? Redemptive activity is not aimed at human goals. It's not just building an organization. It's not just about attracting people and making money. It's at the service of God. It's about the good news of the kingdom, the redemptive potential. And when you think about what might happen if this church or any church— achieves its redemptive potential. We can't be satisfied as long as that hasn't happened. So let me ask you, if you know God, pray, God send workers. That's why we have tables out in all the forias about ministries offered by Summit that you can connect with and talk to those who are leaders in those areas. If you're not plugged in, how can you say you're fulfilling your redemptive potential? And we're saying, God, send workers, not consultants, not supervisors, not spectators, not consumers, send workers into the harvest, that field that could be redeemed humanity on this earth. Pray that. And then say, God, would you help me live at my redemptive potential? I don't know what that is or what it looks like, but would you help me make that happen? Because God, I'm committed. I'm in. I want to live up to my potential. I was thinking, what if every person who calls themselves a follower of Jesus, who's part of this church and ministry were surrounded, I mean surrendered, and made their number one devotion a moment-by-moment with God life on earth? What might happen? What might happen if we were all giving at our full, not somebody else's, but at our full potential? Are you giving at your full potential? Are you serving at your full? Well, no. Well, not much is going to happen with the harvest until you decide to. What if we were all to serve at our full redemptive potential? So pray. See where God is at work around you and in you. Maybe it's where you're volunteering. Maybe it's a gift you haven't used. Maybe you have an idea. Maybe there's some area of need where you have a heart of compassion, and your heart breaks and says, I can't stand to see this. I'm going to take action. I'm going to start something. I'm going to do something. Maybe God's given you some abilities. Some potential, some redemptive potential. Will you tell your story? Will you get in the relay in two Saturdays? It's just one day where people train you to tell your story. That means, what happened to you? Think about it. How tough is it to share your story with other people? You don't have to know any doctrine. You don't even have to use Scripture. The, the woman at the well had had five divorces, five husbands. She was shacked up with a guy not her husband. Jesus said, honey, you're so thirsty, and water's not going to quench it. Vodka and cranberry juice ain't going to quench it. You need water that I can give you, and you'll never thirst again. And, she, she, and he told her, you've had five husbands, and you're living with a guy not your husband. She ran into the city, brought the whole city out, and what was her story? Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. If I'd have been in town, I'm not sure I'd want to be in that crowd. When Jesus was telling everybody all about you. I think, I think I'll clean the yard, honey. And then the guy born blind in John 9, how big of a—how how much of a story did he have? He, the Pharisees were mocking Jesus. They were mocking the blind guy. They were mocking his parents. And he had been born blind, and everybody knew him. And the f- religious leaders were saying, ah, oh, this is probably not the same guy. Uh, this is probably the devil. And, and finally, the guy couldn't take it anymore. He says, look all you deep theologians. Here's what I know. I was blind, and now I see. And Jesus touched me, and now I see. That's what I know. Oh, they hated Him for that. Now, how hard is it to say that? See, I, I, don't pray in King James, the, thou, the. That was written in 1611, translated into a Victorian language. And Unless you're 400 years old, you don't talk that way. Use your normal language. Stop it. You don't get through to God by the, thou and the you can you can stutter you whatever you he, he understands indonesian he he understands Filipino, he understands spanish he can- he understands every weird language going on right now he's got it he's the one who created all these different dialects of the Tower of Babel he understands your Babel, just talk to him that's that's right, and then would you say? God send workers into the harvest, and make me one too. What if it meant a movement got started where every single person in the San Antonio area knew at least one alive, vibrant, Jesus-following, non-weird Christian who was a worker for the harvest? Well, that's what we pray for. That's why we're on this planet, and the harvest is still going on. And thank God Jesus is the kind of Savior who has a heart filled with compassion for human need. Amen. For more information on Rick Godwin and product available, visit SummitSA.com and click on Bookstore.